welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is a best-selling author, influencer, futurist, and strategic business and technology advisor to governments and businesses. His books, which explore data performance indicators, business management, and business trends, have been translated into over 20 languages and have won multiple awards. One of his most recent books, Business Trends in Practice, focuses on the future events and circumstances shaping the way businesses operate. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Bernard Marr to the podcast. Welcome, Bernard. It's lovely to have you on the podcast today. It's so lovely to be with you and thank you so much for having me. I just want to ask you a little bit about your journey and what did that your journey look like to where you are now? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in, in Germany um, and then I started uh, to study uh, business, information technology and engineering and I did two, two degrees in parallel. And then my professor had a relationship with Cambridge University. So he then gave me the opportunity to finish my degrees at Cambridge, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I, I loved my time there. And I wrote a, a, a dissertation on how companies use data to inform their decision making. And then for my second dissertation, I then evaluated different software packages that companies use to visualize their data and analyze it. And this then was picked up by Gartner because um, Gartner is one of the big IT consulting organizations and Cambridge had a relationship with Gartner and they published this as one of the first Gartner reports on BI tools and scorecard tools. So this really, really catapulted me into this industry and then Cambridge offered me a job. So I then joined the faculty there. I worked for the business school as a research fellow. I never really planned any of this. So you just, just fall into this career path. And I don't think I was truly ever an academic at heart. I'm much more interested in writing mainstream books and, and talking to real businesses and, and making a difference. But being at Cambridge really helped me to start writing. So I started writing articles. I started writing books because this is what everyone did. And then I moved from Cambridge to Cranfield School of Management a very practical business school where I worked for 10 years. And they gave me the balance I wanted, the balance of working with big companies, helping them. Um, I created a few research clubs where companies could sign up. And then as part of this, they would get a, a bit of my advice. So I then started doing consulting work and Cranfield was very kind to me and gave me two days of my time per week to do my own thing. And then after doing this for a while, I thought, actually, I'm enjoying this part. I don't want to write the academic articles anymore. I want to write mainstream articles, mainstream books, work with companies uh, and their executive teams, helping them to prepare for all of this. So I then left academia and now just work for myself. And I've never, never really looked back. A lot of your work really focuses on the intersection between business and technology what about this particular area or kind of the merging of these two different areas intrigued you and kind of motivated you to go into it? 
I believe that we are currently experiencing something that the world of business has never experienced, this new industrial revolution, this intelligence revolution that we are seeing where data suddenly has become one of the most important business assets for any organization. And where we have technologies like artificial intelligence that I believe is the most powerful technology businesses have ever had access to. And I believe very firmly that Today, every company has to see themselves as an AI company and data is at the foundation of all of this. So my initial work was all on data. Then AI came on the scene and AI interacts with so many different other technology trends. So suddenly we need cloud computing to enable us to use AI at scale. We need 5G to make it accessible anywhere. AI is used to help us create virtual environments like augmented and virtual spaces that is now becoming the metaverse. So many of those key trends had data at the foundation and they used AI. So I then started writing about some of these other trends that have always fascinated me. And for me, this is where huge challenges are happening in the business world, where organizations now need to understand all of these technology trends. And I still feel that there's a a huge gap in digital literacy across leaders in, in organizations. And there's a huge challenge to reimagine our our jobs in the future. So I write a lot about how, how this will change, what skills we will need in the future. And I guess this is why the book Business Trends and Practice resonated with the, the business world. And I'm still very humbled that it it was awarded the, the 2022 Business Book of the Year, which was just an amazing experience for me. And yeah, so for me, that this is just the, the most important issue any business needs to, to grapple with at the moment. I just want to come back to something you mentioned just then about how all businesses need to kind of be aware of changes in AI and kind of advances in in that and also the way that they utilize data. Do you think that's something that kind of every single business in the future will need to be aware of and take advantage of? Or is it just specific to businesses where technology is kind of a main aspect of their service or of their business? No, and I think this is a really important takeaway from this session if anyone wants to take anything away. And it is that every organization, every single company on the planet will be an AI company of some form in the future. And what we're seeing is that AI has evolved from something that was very complex to something that has become really accessible. At the same time, the technology has evolved to become so much more powerful. We can now use data to train AIs to do things that we could never have imagined before. Because in the past, we needed to understand the rules and then to program those rules into our AI algorithms. So if you if you wanted to have a a program to recognize handwritten address labels on letters. We understand the rules for this, right? Because we we know what an A looks like, what a B looks like, what the different letters look like. And then we can write a program saying these are the different parameters. This is the different versions of A's. These are different versions of B's. And then you can create an AI that can do this really reliable, reliably. And we've had this now for many years. The 
area where AI has struggled with is where we don't understand the rules and therefore we can't write a computer program for it. And there's lots of knowledge. We talk about tacit knowledge that we can't make explicit. So the way you have learned, for example, to recognize different animals on a photograph I have got three kids. I've gone through this process three times where you sit down with your children and you get out out the picture books and you say, this is a giraffe and this is a tiger and this is an elephant. And then a few weeks or months later, they recognize those and they can pick out any elephant. And so what they've done is they've learned through experience and they've created little connections in their neural networks that they have in their brain where billions of neurons are connected. And we basically feed them with information and then they make connections. What is so amazing is that we can now replicate this learning process in our artificial intelligence algorithms. So we have replicated an artificial neural network, so a network of AI, of neurons, and we give it data, a bit like showing children pictures. And then these AIs learn and create their own algorithms. And this now enables AIs to understand our language. And we're using this every day speaking to our watches and phones and our Alexas and our cars. And we can now use it to become creative. Um, There are now amazing tools out there. One good example is Paragraph AI. This is a free app that anyone can download. And you simply write a sentence of what you want this AI to write about, and it will then create a paragraph. So if you need to do school homework and you want to have a history article on Henry VIII, you can simply give the AI the task to do this and it will draft a unique article based on all the knowledge of the internet. And we can now use AI to create images, for example. There's an amazing new tool out there called DALI2 that, again, you give the system a written instruction saying, I want a green polar bear on the moon and the AI will then create a new image. And you can say, I want this as a painting, as a drawing, as a photograph. You can then edit certain bits. And these are images that have never existed before. So what we're now seeing is that people can access these amazing advances in AI with absolutely no need for any coding. We can just use apps. So many of these capabilities are now built into tools. So if a company wants to do marketing, We have now lots of AIs that can help us with all of this. They can not only write copy for us, they will tell us when is the best time to send out tweets. They will optimize um, lots of our marketing efforts. So sometimes it feels like AI is, is hidden in what we already do every day because we are already using cars that can drive by themselves and, and, and keep us safe and We have speakers that we can speak to and they tell us stories. And so I believe that there's no aspect of our work that will not in some way be impacted by AI. So in the past, we have had intelligent robots that could make cars. Now we have intelligent robots that can design new cars and they can write stories. They can write entire books. There was a a book that recently was nominated for a literacy prize that was written by an AI. And from this 
this perspective, I think, is really important for every organization to think: Okay, how am I, am I using AI in the best way possible? How will it augment my business? And and then, really importantly, how will this augment the skills that I will need in the future and the people I need in the future? And what we're seeing at the moment that there's a, a huge skills gap in some of these technical skills around digital literacy, around data literacy, and people with those skills can command huge salaries. And it's very difficult for ordinary businesses to recruit anyone that has strong talent because they can literally choose from any business in the world. And if Google or Apple come along and say, we, we give you a really nice package with a big salary, most other companies can't compete with that. So it's important for organizations to grow some of this talent, but also realize that the fact that AIs are now becoming so much more powerful and they're able to do parts of our jobs, it means that our jobs will become even more human and we will rely on the more human skills in the future. So for example, if you think about a radiologist, for example, a really well-paid job in, in a hospital, someone that, that scans X-ray images and CT scans for broken bones and, and cancer. We now have machines that are designed by Siemens and GE that come with inbuilt capabilities to diagnose because they have inbuilt AI. So they're not just taking the image, they're also scanning for broken bones and they're scanning for precancerous cells. And what this now means is that the radiologist is freed up from spending eight hours of his or her time analyzing scans, which if we're all honest with ourselves, is not the best use of human talent. Or I believe that humans are these amazingly capable creatures and spending eight hours looking at scans when as humans, we are not best placed to do this anyway, because sometimes we are tired. We just had an argument with someone. We don't concentrate. Our concentration span is quite limited as well. So if someone says we are this is a full body CT scan and we're looking for potentially potential break in the spine, our human mind is focused on finding this break. Whereas this has scanned the entire body and there might be an opportunity to look for secondary diagnoses as well. And the AI will never miss anything and it will find any abnormalities in the entire full body scan. It can then highlight this to the radiologist and suddenly their job changes. They are now much more focused on, okay, how do I make the right diagnosis? How do I then talk to the patient? How do I personalize their treatment journey? They can spend more time on research and furthering the field. And all of this requires much more human skills. We need creativity. Um, we need interpersonal communication skills. We need the emotional intelligence. We need teamworking abilities. All of this will become so much more important. All the things that machines can't do yet. And this is I, something I spend a lot of my time on, trying to help organizations understand the impact of these technologies on their industry and what this means in terms of getting ready for this creating plans and strategies, making sure they close some of these talent gaps and, and start to use some of these technologies effectively. It's very interesting to hear about the distinction between those human jobs and then AI jobs. And I think one thing that people definitely are curious about is the way AI will impact 
everyday jobs, I suppose. And, you know, a fear, I guess, is that it will strip away many jobs from a lot of people. But how do you think that AI will impact various jobs that are currently dominated by humans? And and what kind of human-focused jobs in the future will exist? What does that kind of working world look like, in your opinion? Sometimes we are putting this AI versus machines and they are taking our jobs. This is not the word I'm seeing. For me, if you think about AI, it's more like a domesticated animal. I think this is a good analogy where we are in charge and we're using sniffer dogs to help us detect drugs because their sense of smell is so much better than our human sense of smell. And as humans, we still need to train them and and, and look after them. And the same is true for intelligent, smart machines in the future. They will not replace necessarily many jobs, but augment many jobs. So it will mean that how we divide our jobs between the things that machines do and the things that humans do will change. And of course, there will be some jobs that will get lost. And we've always had this throughout all the different industrial revolutions. Suddenly, you don't need lift operators. You don't need as many bank tellers. Lots of different jobs that have disappeared and new ones emerge all the time. There was a really interesting bit of research recently by Dell and the Institute of the Future that said that 80% of the jobs we will have in 20 or 30 years time don't exist today. And if someone said to us, okay, in the future, we'll have, like, if we go back 20 years ago, we'll have social media managers and we have data scientists and AI engineers and AI ethicists, (laughs) we wouldn't have said, no, this is all not going to happen, really. And it is. So... Lots of the research by the World Economic Forum and others predict that this intelligence revolution we're going through at the moment will create more jobs than it will destroy. So that is a positive message. At the same time, I think it's really, sometimes people say this is all going to be good. I think there's going to be a huge transition and a huge challenge because lots of people in the world are employed as supermarket checkout personnel. They drive taxis. And these kind of jobs, I believe, will disappear in the future. And somehow, again, if we look at this fairly, should humans really be sitting there all day and taking an item that you have put into your trolley and then onto the conveyor belt and scan it That is such a waste of human talent. I completely agree that this is a way of making money for lots of people, but there are huge opportunities for everyone to have better jobs, more human jobs that pay more, and it is now easier than ever to retrain. So the worst thing that companies and individuals can do is say, put their head in the sand and say, this is not going to happen. It is going to happen. If we look at the supermarket example, Amazon a company that really has put AI the center of everything they do. They now have a supermarket chain called Amazon Go that doesn't have any checkout people. It just uses cameras and machine vision AI to monitor. So when you walk in, it will recognize your face. You have your credit card information stored with them. You simply walk in, put the shopping straight into your shopping bag, The cameras will watch exactly what you've put in. And if you've taken something out, it will register this too. And then you simply walk out and you get charged for whatever you've taken, which is such a better model because it seems crazy to me nowadays that you go into a supermarket, you fill your trolley up, you take it all back out. At the end, you have a human scanning it and then you pack it back into your bags. 
that is not a good process. And it's not a good use of human talent. And the same for taxi drivers. Um, there are lots of taxi drivers around at the moment. In the future, we will have self-driving cars that will be safer, better. And so we need to think about how we reskill these people and make them aware of what is happening and give them the opportunity to do this. And I feel that there is a role for governments and organizations to help with all of this. But I also feel that it's somehow on individuals to be a little bit more aware of what is going on in the world. And I feel that today this is so easy. When you think about taxi drivers in India, for example, I recently had a conversation with the CEO of Infosys, one of the largest companies in India, and they have a real demand to fill some of their own skills gaps around data, around technology and others. And they now have partnered with online learning platforms like like Udemy and Coursera and others to offer free courses. So if you are a taxi driver in India, you can now learn some of these skills for free. And they have even partnered with an AI company that looks for certain characteristics and potential of people that they, even if you haven't got the skills now, you can do this online test and it shows that you have the right mindset and the right potential that they're looking for, they might still give you a job and they then train you on the job. And if not, you can take free online classes. If you're interested in data science, you can do this. If you're interested in ethics around technology, you can do that. And for me, there's a real opportunity, but obviously this will be a challenge because there will be lots of people that will feel left behind. One thing that you mentioned there is this technology revolution that we're experiencing right now. But the way that you reference it in the book is that it's this sort of fourth industrial revolution, but it's unique to any revolution that we've seen before in that technology is growing exponentially. And you mentioned there kind of the positive aspects of that, and, and there are many positive aspects of it. But what are some of the risks of it being this revolution that's growing exponentially? Depends how you look at it. So from a, a business perspective, technology is pretty agnostic. So you can use it for good things and for bad things. And technology offers huge opportunities to make our world a better place to drive forward some of the biggest challenges and, and address them, such as sustainability and inequality. Um, if you think about AI, we can now create healthcare AIs where we can use an app on our phone to diagnose skin diseases, for example. And these are becoming more reliable than even, even going to a dermatologist. So this will potentially democratize healthcare because anyone in the world suddenly has access to these tools. It will potentially democratize education. So there are so many inequalities at the moment that we can address. At the same time, if we don't create the infrastructure in countries, if we don't create the right economy where people can earn money because you still need to buy some of those devices, you need smartphones, you need some of this technology, this can potentially reinforce some of the inequalities we already have in the world. I think for lots of very large incumbent organizations, it poses a huge challenge because we need organizations that are able to use those technologies to understand them and 
this also means that we need to rethink not only the skills we need, but also the organizational culture and how we operate. And I feel that this is a real challenge. I was with an insurance company recently, a very traditional insurance company, and I was talking to them about some of the key trends that are reshaping their industry, not just AI, but blockchain technology and others. And they were saying, we don't see this as a massive threat because we have lots of money in the bank and we simply watch all the the new startups coming along and we will simply acquire them. So I thought this is all really nice in theory. But if you look into those organizations, the kind of people they employ, the kind of culture they have, how they operate, this is so different to how you operate here in this very traditional business. And if you think that you can simply acquire them and those people will be happily staying with you, that is so wrong. So they can acquire the business, but they can't change the culture. And so there are big implications. And this is why I wrote this book, because there are so many different aspects from organizations need to rethink their products and services. They need to become more intelligent. We'll move to a much more as a service model around many of the products. We need to completely rethink how we operate as businesses from applying some of these technologies to the people we employ, to the culture we have in place. And I find lots of traditional big companies and big brands that we're all used to will have a real challenge um, transitioning into this new world. One of the things that you mention is the geopolitical relationships between different countries and specifically you mention how global superpowers will change and China and and India will take over the US as a global superpower. But you also mention the increase in polarisation that will occur within domestic nations, but also, you know, fragment the world in general. How do these geopolitical and social changes, how will they impact, say, a medium-sized business or, or just any business that exists within these specific countries? Is that something that these businesses still need to pay attention to and be aware of? Very much, because today we live in this globalized world where we have global supply chains. And, and we see this today with the energy prices. This is something that is now a major concern for every single company and every single household in this country. And this is driven by geopolitical concerns and the fact that Russia decided to invade Ukraine. So commodity prices, resources, all of this has real implications. If you're in the technology world, that they've had severe supply chain issues around microchips, for example. And some of this is still a legacy from COVID and the fact that the COVID policies in China where lots of goods are manufactured that that will come into our supply chain, they still have a zero COVID policy, which still means they have lockdowns and factories are shut down. So this is still a problem that is, is bubbling along. At the same time, we have bigger political issues with China maybe not standing up to Russia in the way I believe they should have done, maybe because they have their own political agenda with Taiwan and others. So again, this means there's a risk. All of these things pose risks for organizations, but they also pose opportunities. So it starts with understanding where are your markets? Where are you selling things to? 
And if your market was Russia in the past, you have suddenly a big problem because there are sanctions and you can't sell to those markets anymore. But for, for lots of organizations, even if they're not internationally selling their products and services, it is a supply chain issue that they have to really carefully look at. And for me, one of the, the issues that lots of companies that I advise and work with at the moment, resilience is such an important factor at the moment how do they in, improve their overall business resilience and and for me assessing their supply chain and some of the risks is a vital part of all of this yes and and i i don't see any of this going going away anytime soon because as china and india become more powerful we've just seen apple for example move their iphone production or parts of it from china to india that is again reducing some of the geopolitical risks if china suddenly decides to do something that like russia <laughs> invade taiwan there will be sanctions and they will have huge implications for supply chains so businesses need to look at all of this very carefully and the the increasing polarization is something that i worry about as someone that that lives in a country that seems to become more extreme in their views we've had brexit that i didn't predict i understood the various arguments for and against but then i've written a number of articles saying it would be completely crazy to decide to go for brexit and when i woke up the next day and it became clear that brexit was <laughs> was happening you think this is so crazy and brexit is obviously not happening has has not happened it will not conclude in any meaningful way most businesses now realize that it was a stupid decision that has not delivered any of the benefits but all of this is driven by polarization driven by fake news by social media bubbles where suddenly arguments are not no longer based on critical thinking and meaningful data they're driven by sound bites and there's a challenge that the more frustrated people feel about the economy about their own standard of living and the crisis around cost of living in countries like ours there's a real challenge that this will bubble up and we see this in sweden we've seen this in france we see this in italy where you seem to get more extreme views more really left field views really right wing views and sometimes we forget that most of us should be sitting somewhere in the middle <laughs> and and this is something we need to address and for me a, a really important skill is to have this ability to critically evaluate information especially the younger generation they get lots of the information and the news on social media platforms like tiktok and instagram and this is something we need to teach all of them that we need to really critically think where's this information coming from is someone paying for this information to be circulated whose interest is it are the sources correct we can use technology for some of this in the future to fact check information before it goes viral but we're not quite there yet and i, I think it's really important to build this critical thinking in our in, in the younger generation so they don't fall into the trap of believing some some of the rubbish that circulates i just want to touch on one of the, the major technological revolutionary changes has been the development of the metaverse and so many people are kind of talking about the pros and cons of it whether it's a good thing or a bad thing i just want to ask you 
in the same way as, you know, polarized thinking isn't black or white, maybe it's not, you know, all good and all, all bad. But in your opinion and your from your perspective, is the metaverse a threat to society and businesses more than it is a benefit? I think it's a huge opportunity for, for organizations. Um, there's so much confusion about what the metaverse is. And for some people, it is this utopian world of the film Ready Player One, where you escape into the oasis, this whole digital world where you can be whatever you want to be. And people basically escape the real world to do this. For me, the metaverse, and I don't particularly like the term, but it's good to have a term to dis- to discuss. For me, it is the next evolution of the internet. And for me, there are two components of it. The first evolution of the internet was websites. The second one was social media and the participative internet and content generation. The next evolution of the internet will be more immersive. So it will feel more real using technologies like augmented reality and virtual reality. And it will potentially be more decentralized using technologies like blockchain technology and and NFTs. And for me, we are seeing lots of the early stage development. So it's not all coming together. But for me, a great example that anyone can try out after listening to this conversation is if you Google a dinosaur. Let's say you're looking for a Tyrannosaurus Rex, for example, and you use a Google browser on your phone. If you get the search results, you have the opportunity of viewing it in AR, so an augmented reality. So you press this button and then it will ask you, do you want to see it in your own surroundings? So you wiggle your phone around for a little bit and then the dinosaur will appear in the actual size in front of you, in your kitchen, in your garden, wherever you are. And it makes sounds and you can then walk around it looking through the phone camera. And for me, this is just a very super simple example of how the metaverse is starting to become real because it's much more immersive. I can look at a flat picture of a dinosaur, but it doesn't give me an idea of scale. And I was showing this to to people in Dublin recently at a conference. And their minds were blown. They're saying, this is so scary. This is so cool. Suddenly it becomes real. And another example is that I took my family to the ABBA Voyage recently. So this is a concert in London. It's a purpose-built venue in, in the Olympic Park in London. And ABBA performs, but they don't perform as the real ABBAs. They are avatars or avatars. So they basically spend some time having themselves captured in 3D. Then they use artificial intelligence to make themselves younger. And now they're performing on stage with a a real band, with real background singers, with amazing lighting, because the venue was just designed for all of this with an amazing screen in the background. And for me, it felt like I was watching ABBA. And for me, the the best critic was my wife because she doesn't really like technology and she loves live live music. And halfway through the concert, she leant over to me and said, actually, this will blow all future concerts out of the water. There are so many examples. And I have recently given a presentation simultaneously in Singapore and in Sydney, but I was in a motion capture studio in London. And my presentation was delivered by my avatar that was beamed to Sydney and Singapore to a real life audience. So again, that (laughs) makes my job so much easier. And we're seeing a lot of this evolving at the moment. Lots of the components are be put in place. 
I also have a a virtual avatar of myself. So again, I used artificial intelligence to create an avatar of me, and I can now type in text into a document, give this to this AI, and this will create a video of me presenting this text. And it will use my voice because I trained the AI in my in my voice. So anything that is on my TikTok is actually my digital avatar. This is not me. Uh, for my own podcast, I interviewed a digital pop star called Paula. So she doesn't exist uh, in the real world. She is completely digital, but she is gathering millions of, of views online. She's becoming a, a digital influencer. And we are seeing this that if you think about how much time our children already spend in multiplayer games, for example, these are virtual worlds where they run around an island trying to escape from each other, whatever they're doing, working as teams, trying to win this this battle. And these are all unique worlds. Everyone sees they're part of the real world and they're playing together. This for me is, again, indication of where some of this technology is today. But we recently had Ariana Grande perform in the Fortnite game. So she performed a series of concerts as her digital avatar and she had 78 million people watch it. This is simply impossible in the real world. And again, if you think about going to a, a virtual trade show, yeah, real trade shows can be really tiring. You fly to, let's say, Las Vegas, you go into these massive halls, you walk around, there's no oxygen, you then get to a stand, you need to find the person to speak to about their products. And then this is really noisy. In the digital world, we can make this so much better. You can basically beam or fly to any place. If you wanted to fly to the next stand, you can do this. You can beam yourself straight there. You can then speak to the person and blend out the, any background noise and just have a personal conversation. And then if they wanted to show you their product for real, you could then go to the digital twin of this product and actually try it out in the same way that, that Formula One cars and Formula One teams are using digital twin technology. So this is, again, another great example for, for the metaverse. Formula One has always been at the leading edge of technology. And I, I've done some work with Red Bull Racing here in the UK. And they basically create digital versions of their cars. They then try these out in virtual wind tunnels. And they will race those cars virtually on the simulations of the racetrack that they're racing on the next week. And then they will optimize the car in the digital world. Let's say they change the, the shape of the wings a little bit. And then they can press a button and then they can 3D print those components. So again, this is this merging of the virtual world and the real world is for me where the really exciting part of the metaverse will happen. And the opportunities are endless. And of course, it comes with very similar challenges that at the moment, there's very little regulation. There's in terms of technology, we're not quite there yet. We haven't really got the consumer versions of this technology. I had a prototype of VR glasses uh, recently that look pretty much like sunglasses. And when we get to that sort of level of technology, we have these blended virtual reality glasses that you can stick on when we have 5G and 6G connectivity anywhere that allows us to access VR in the cloud. 
that means you can be in the back of a car, on a bus, on a plane, and you can enter the digital universe and do pretty much anything you can imagine. You could sit there and watch a movie in the biggest screen imaginable, or you can play games, or you can meet up with friends. So in terms of technology, we will get there. Companies like Samsung and Apple and others are going to release super exciting glasses that will get us closer to that vision. So for me, there's still a few stumbling blocks, but hopefully it will make our world a better place and hopefully a more human place because lots of the digital experiences that we have today are not really that human. They are flat. They are not as immersive as the real world. And of course, one of the potential downsides is that we spend too much time in the metaverse because it's more exciting than the real world and you can be anything you want to be. But we already have that problem today that our kids want to be on their video games because this is where they interact with their friends, this is where they socialize, this is where they experience amazing things. So we need to be a bit careful, but I think the opportunities clearly outweigh the dangers and for any business that is not starting to think about what the metaverse means for them, that is really dangerous because this is going to be such an important trend. A really good example recently, I was working with a whiskey company and they wanted to create a more immersive brand experience. So they were launching a new cocktail with one of the big luxury hotels in London. And this is going to be their flagship cocktail. And they wanted to now create this more immersive engagement with their brand. But how do you do this? You show them a bottle, you show them a little catalog. What they're now doing is you basically, you're ordering your whiskey cocktail. The bartender gives you a set of VR goggles. You stick those on. And these will transport you. You will fly out across the UK to the Highlands in Scotland. You see where the water is coming from, from the whiskey. You fly over the stream. You see the distillery in the background. You then fly into the distillery. You see how they're making the whiskey. And suddenly you get this amazingly immersive experience you get a, a tour of the distillery and the surroundings and you can really connect with the brand. And then when your tour is finished, you take your glasses off and your whiskey cocktail is in front of you. And we're seeing similar things now where you have the ability to use an app to bring your wine labels to life. So 19 Crimes, they are a wine brand and you can simply use your phone to scan some of those labels. And they've built this brand around criminals being deported to Australia and then setting up new ventures there. And they've got pictures of these various criminals that did these 19 crimes. And you point your phone and then the person on the wine label becomes alive and tells you their stories. In the same way, if you wanted to showcase, if nowadays, if you want to look at the, the latest iPhone, very similar to the dinosaur, you can put the iPhone into your room and you can walk around it and you can see what it actually feels like. Or if you want to buy furniture, um, we just bought a, a new suite of sofas and we tried them out in augmented reality in our living room. So you can replace your existing sofa with the new sofa and you see what it looks like in terms of colors. Companies like Dulux use it to allow you to use your phone to change the, the paint on your walls to see what the different shades might look like in your actual house. So there are huge opportunities for every single organization to really leverage this amazing new technology and, and, and create a more immersive experience for their customers and their employees.
yeah, that's definitely a really kind of refreshing, interesting perspective to hear all of those positive aspects. But unfortunately, we have come to the end of the podcast. And uh, with every podcast, we like to finish it with a segment called Answer the Internet. And this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs the answers to. And this question is from Reddit, and it's from a user called Mitch and Boo. And they ask, why is blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies promoted as something big, revolutionary, and never seen before, if it's just a technique to account for transactions? What is so revolutionary about using blockchain to make transactions? A really good question. So blockchain technology, when I talked about the future internet, I said there's the metaverse element and there's the decentralized element. And blockchains have the potential to take away lots of inefficiencies in lots of parts of business. So it basically means the person is absolutely right. It is just a way of recording a transaction, a bit like a database. But the big difference is that this is a distributed database. So instead of having a central entity controlling it, like if you look at your your bank, your bank has the ledger that says this is how much money is in your account. If I now want to send money to someone else, the two banks then need to coordinate. They need to make sure, okay, has this person enough money in the bank? Now I need to verify the transaction. Now I'm putting this into that person's bank, take it out of that one. And this is quite a cumbersome process. And it relies on those two banks having the right systems in place and looking after your data. In a blockchain, you basically store. So let's say you have a bit of cryptocurrency. This is stored on thousands of millions of computers across the world. And there's no more the single point of failure. So if if someone hacked into the bank and stole all your money, there's nothing you can do. And this is almost impossible to do with today's technology in a blockchain because you needed to basically hack into more than 50% of all these computers across the world. And you can't do that right now. So it's a very secure way of storing data. And it basically has, therefore, this inbuilt trust function. So if, for example, I don't need the banks to play the middleman function, I can just say, if I have money in my digital wallet and I want to send it to you, I can simply press a button and do this without the need of any bank. And for me, there's huge potential to use this sort of technology. And also there's part of an ideological component to this as well, where blockchain means we rely less on central control and more giving this control to everyone. So relying on technology to perform this trust function. And there are so many processes that I feel are broken at the moment. Um, One of the examples I often give is buying a house in this country. Yeah. So you want to sell your house, you then need to do all the searches and update all of this. You then need a solicitor, you need an estate agent, the solicitor then of your, if you want to sell it, of the seller and the buyer need to coordinate. They then get the money transferred to from the bank. They then need to make sure that the money is in each of their accounts. They then coordinate with each other to exchange the money. And you think this is all so broken and so cumbersome that it doesn't need to be like this. So in the future, you can have the ownership of your house documented in the blockchain where you have automatically all the searches updated. So you never have to do this again. And when you 
want to buy someone's house, you don't simply press a button and it all happens automatically using smart contracts. So there are huge opportunities, but also huge threats for industries that perform those middlemen functions. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about and how that, you know, trust is a really big part of that. And that digital trust is is a really integral part of blockchain technology. We are Business Leader Magazine. So what makes a great business leader? For me, there are two really important components to being a good leader in business. One is someone that is humble. And that means someone that is able to understand that they don't know everything, that they need to build strong teams around them, and that they also need to keep up with all the advances in technology and society and business are happening. Some of the things we touched on today. So for me, someone that is humble is able to do this. They will keep an open mind. They're happy to learn. They take on advice. And for me, the second component is that a good leader will want to get the best out of everyone else. So that means they are good leaders. They value diversity of opinion and everything else. They allow people to be their authentic selves and they help others to grow. And for me, if you are a humble leader and someone that allows others to grow and focus on this, you will be an amazing leader. That's great. And uh, do you have any final words for the audience today? One topic that we haven't touched on today is sustainability. And this is something that's very close to my heart. I believe that this is going to become one of the biggest challenges for businesses in the future. So I don't think you can talk about business or technology without looking at sustainability. And if businesses thought that the coronavirus pandemic was a big shock and a big challenge to deal with, I believe that the climate change disaster is going to be a much, much bigger problem. So every organization needs to put sustainability right at the center of everything they do. Just so our listeners know as well, where can they follow you on social media and also where can they find uh, your book and the rest of your books as well? Yes, yeah, so a really good central point is my website, bernardmar.com, where you can find all my books, all my articles, all my podcasts, all my videos. And then you can find me on pretty much any social media platform. The LinkedIn is for me the best platform for anyone in business and where I do a lot of where I share all my content, but also Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, you name it, you can find me. 